so it wasn't just about telling people about me and help me get a job. It was more finding out about what other people were doing, what they liked about it, which has always been of interest to me, and then seeing what that sparked in me. Welcome to Making Change With Your Money, a podcast that highlights the stories and strategies of women who experienced a big life transition and overcame challenges as they redefined financial success for themselves. Now here's your host, certified financial planner, Laura Rotter. So I am so excited to introduce my guest today, Tammy Guler-Loeb. Tammy is an executive and career coach, and she has just celebrated recording the 200th episode of her podcast, Work from the Inside Out, where she interviews people who've made significant career transitions leading to more rewarding and satisfying work lives. And Tammy also is author of a book by the same name, Work from the Inside Out. So I'm excited to learn about your journey, Tammy. Thanks so much for agreeing to be a guest on my podcast. My pleasure, Laura. And I I will say that you were one of the esteemed guests on my podcast. Yes, thank you. I enjoyed that. Yeah. So I like to start with the same question with everyone I've interviewed, just to sort of set the tone for the conversation we'll have today. And that question is, what was money like in your family growing mm. up? So, you know, it's a it's a great question. I, I'm going based on my memories as a kid. I, I remember I always wanted to go to sleepaway camp. And I was always told it costs too much. There were other things I remember, like I remember my mother really liked nice clothes and things. Not that she bought a lot, but when she did, she seemed to get a few very nice things for herself. Not, I don't, I won't say that she was, you know, getting herself nice things and then not letting me go to sleepaway camp. I don't mean <laughs> it like that, but there was this you know, very different relationship with money in terms of, you know, you have to spend money to get nice things. What I started to realize probably once I went off to college where, you know, you can get good value, not have to spend a ton of money to get good value. So I think there was an equation between what are you spending? What does that mean? You know, the equation between how much you're spending and what is value. And, you know, we had everything we needed. I, I'd say I grew up in a, in a probably upper middle class upbringing. I mean, I'm not, you know, I just remember the conversation about sleepaway camp and a lot of my friends got to go. And I think I once got to go to Girl Scout camp for a couple of weeks, but I never, <laughs> never got the full eight week experience as it used to be. And I always felt a little deprived about that, but I got to do lots of other things growing up that obviously involved money. So, but it was about, you know, what kinds of things can money get you? You know, it was, it really was looking at that, I think. And, and the notion that if someone's doing well, they might have a nice car. They might, there was a materialism. I don't think I was raised with a super deep sense of materialism, but there was some connection around that. And both of my parents, of course, were were children during the depression. So there was an equation, I think, between 
not wanting to overspend. I, I think I was definitely taught to not spend everything you make. There was a bit of that. But, you know, when I think about the things I've learned later in my life about money and about credit and things like that, there were a lot of things I wasn't that prepared for when I was really more on my own that I've been able to teach my daughter much earlier in her life. And I've seen her relationship with money being very different than mine was at her age. So I feel very good about that. That's great. What I'm hearing you say is that when you grew up, you did get the message to be thoughtful about how you spend your money. Yes, but I felt I did. I did feel a little bit limited sometimes. I don't want to say deprived because I really wasn't. And I'm glad that you're also you are being thoughtful about how you educate your daughter about money, because our society does not educate people. about. No, I, I know. I think people and it's nobody's fault. There's no one you know, you can't blame you can't put blame anywhere. But several years ago, I got a contract with the United Way to teach coaching skills to financial coaches who were working with low and moderate income populations in the community through a variety of organizations that were designed to try to alleviate poverty. And so they were a wide range of organizations, but they were working with mostly adults, sometimes younger people, but mostly adults, families, helping them to either um, repair credit or build credit, helping people with first-time homebuyer programs or, you know, a variety of, of those kinds of financial matters. And so in the process of me teaching the coaching skills, I also learned a lot about all the ins and outs of budgeting and assets and the ins and outs of credit that I didn't know before, even though I have an MBA and I took a lot of financial courses in graduate school. And from that, I was able to bring a lot of that learning to my daughter as she was growing up and realized that even though I was already careful with money, I I just I got some insights that I didn't have before that if I had had them earlier on, I might have made some other decisions. Like the first time I bought my first house thinking that it was a good idea to cut up most of my credit cards to free up my credit um. <laughs> <laughs> so that I could get my first mortgage. That was not a good idea. Not a good idea. Well, that's a whole other discussion of <laughs> that, right? You know, how how a, one of all the variables that go into calculating a credit score and that if you cut up your credit cards... <laughs> I thought it was the smartest thing I could do. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So please share your journey. I know you've been a consultant since the early 90s, but mm. how did that evolve? I've been employed since I was a teenager. and Oh, do you um, remember your first job? Oh, sure. Well, as a very young person, I did babysitting and things like that. I always have, <laughs> as, a, as a career coach, I always have people talk about their very first job, not just their first job with an employer, a formal employer, but, you know, what was your very first job where you got paid for something? I guess my very first job was ironing shirts at home, getting a quarter a shirt. 
That's interesting. Your parents teaching you the value of, of a quarter, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably why if you ask me where the iron is in my house now, I'd have to really think about it. But that's another story. My first real paid job, though, was I worked in the kitchen of a nursing home and I made more than minimum wage, which is probably why I took that job because otherwise I would have ended up at Burger King, which is where I also had a job offer. So, um, but I did, I worked in a kitchen of a nursing home and I worked 16 hours a week. And I remember exactly how much I made every week there. I think in my senior year of high school, I had a couple of other jobs before that. Actually, I did work at a summer camp for a few summers as a counselor. So those were some early jobs. What was your major in college? Did you have an idea of who you wanted to be when you grew up? I did. Actually, I was I was very focused. I I knew that I wanted to major in psychology and I I thought that I wanted to become some kind of clinical psychologist. I went into school thinking that I would just go through a very sort of I went to a very non-traditional school as an undergrad. I went to a school called Hampshire College. I know and, Hampshire. Yeah. A lot of people don't, though. But one of our mo more famous alums from Hampshire was uh, the um, documentary filmmaker, Ken Burns. Hampshire has no grades and no tests. It's a very project-driven, analytical, critical thinking-driven kind of curriculum. And I went to Hampshire being not really the most non-traditional person, but I loved that style of education. But I crafted for myself a major that really followed a very traditional psychology degree and thought I was going to go get a master's and PhD in clinical psychology. That's not what happened. I did still follow that path as an undergrad. But once I was done with Hampshire and finishing a thesis, I was really done with school for a while. So <laughs> I... I didn't go to grad school right away. And what did you do? Because I hear an ethic of needing to earn money somehow. Oh, sure. So I was always very, I was very independent. I did not want to depend on anybody. In fact, throughout school, I always had uh, a job. I always had a job on campus and I didn't want to do jobs that didn't take me somewhere next. So I worked in the admissions office and I worked in the career center on campus. So those were jobs where I got to do things that enabled me to think about what was next. So in the uh, admissions office, I started out stuffing envelopes and things like that. But by my second year there, I was, I was actually interviewing prospective students for the, um, for the admissions office, which was really an honor because I, I, don't think a lot of the other student workers in the office there got to do that, but I somehow managed to do that. And then in the career center, I got to do all kinds of really interesting things, helping other students prepare resumes and to get ready for grad school and think about their careers. So that's that's where I really first began being interested in helping people with their careers and their goals. I was still very interested in clinical psychology and in mental health. and but I wasn't sure how I wanted to pursue it. So when I graduated, I got a job in community mental health and I worked as a counselor with chronically mentally ill folks who were being literally emptied out of the state 
hospitals. They were doing a lot of what they called deinstitutionalization and normalization, as they were calling it. And I did that for three years. And then I kind of burnt out on that and packed up my stuff, saved some, saved some money, packed up my stuff and bought a one-way ticket to Europe <laughs> wow. and said, I'm ready for an adventure now. <laughs> and that sounds very brave, Tammy, for someone, as you said, you're on a traditional path, you got messages about money from your parents. And then you said, okay, I'm out of here. And I'm going to Europe. What did that look like? What did that feel? Um, It looked like I was just done with what I was doing. And I wasn't sure was net what was next. But I knew that whenever I had traveled before, I always felt this sense of freedom and adventure and curiosity. And I wanted that because I wasn't feeling that. So I had enough money to get myself around Europe for a while. And I had a credit card in my pocket. I think it had a credit limit of like $500 or something. <laughs> this was back was in the mid in those days. This was, in the, this was in the mid 80s. And I had a friend living in Greece at the time. So I bought a one-way ticket to Athens. and bought a really fancy backpack and I packed every, I did a lot of research and I packed everything up that I needed to make sure that I could, you know, have enough to wear under different weather conditions and just went. I was 25 and probably my parents were horrified, but I really just didn't care what anyone thought. I just went. That's, I, I love that. I didn't know you have, the, you had that spirit about you to take what must have felt like a risk. And- oh, I was so ready for it. And, and I really, I thought, well, if I run out of money, I'll just find ways to work and find a way to make money as I go along. I didn't know how long I was going to be gone. I didn't know whether I was going to be gone two weeks, six months. I didn't, I really, I left everything very open and up in the air. And it was the most liberating feeling in the world. Now, once I got over there and reality hit and I had realized I had no real plan, it kind of sunk in after a few weeks. It was like, oh, well, what am I doing? And who am I? And what is this all about? <laughs> and I started to feel a little bit, a little, a little lost. What did you do when you got back? Did when you I got back, have a place to live? You had kept... Uh, no, I didn't. I, I went back to, uh, I went back to the Pioneer Valley and I found a dirt cheap, dumpy apartment <laughs> that I lived in alone and started doing some soul searching and figuring things out. I actually applied to grad school thinking that I wanted to get a degree in public policy because I really was wondering this this program that I'd worked in in the community was completely funded by state money. And I I wondered how the decision makers at the state house were making these policies and then funding these programs and all that was going on in the community, in the mental health community. And it, a lot of it just didn't make sense to me that these legislators were making all these policymakers were making all these decisions about people they really didn't know much about. So I thought, well, maybe I need to know about public policy. So I'll learn about public policy. I'll get a master's. So I actually got accepted to a program, got offered an amazing scholarship, a really great program. And then I realized, wait a minute, 
why would I spend all this time and money because it wasn't a full scholarship and go to school about something I don't know anything about? I don't really know about. Maybe I should work in public policy first before I actually decide that I want a higher degree. And I've spoken to some people who had higher degrees in public policy, and I started learning a little more about it. And I thought, I think I better work in public policy a little bit before I get a degree in it. So I actually packed up my bags and I moved to Boston where the state capital was. I thought, well, I better be where the action is. So I moved to Boston. I moved in with a friend who had an opening in her apartment. And I knew some people who worked in the mayor's office in Boston. And I was able to get a job there. Took about six months. So I tempt. I was eating peanut butter sandwiches and really <laughs> bare bones. And I was temping, doing all kinds of thankless jobs. And But it was good. It was good that I did that because I actually got exposure to a lot of different work environments in that process. Wow. And it really was a tremendous opportunity because this guy that I got the job with, he was really like a member of the mayor's cabinet. And the mayor in Boston had a very high profile nationally at the time, specifically around the work they were doing in Boston around, around hunger and homelessness and poverty. And that was both a human service issue and a public health issue. And so we ended up doing a lot of work that had both local implications, but also national implications, because a lot of people had their eyes on what Boston was doing about the issues around homelessness. And so it was just a great, great place to be, a great opportunity. And I, I ended up staying there for four years. And it it was an amazing, amazing place to work. Over the years that I had worked in community organizations and then working and interfacing with a lot of nonprofit and service providers as a result of my work in the mayor's office, I saw a lot of very skilled, very well-intentioned people trying to run organizations to do a lot of good for a lot of people. And I saw a lot of these organizations struggling to really stay afloat. And I thought, I need to understand how organizations are run and how do they stay healthy. And I thought getting an MBA would be a great way to understand that. And Boston University had a program that was an MBA in nonprofit and public management. And basically what that was, was a basic MBA with a few nonprofit courses thrown in on the side. So it really was a full MBA, but I also got some of the nuances of nonprofit management and fiscal management. So it was really a great opportunity. And, and the city at the time had some kind of an arrangement with Boston University. So I was able to, while I was employed by the city, go to BU tuition free. Wonderful. I had no idea what an amazing opportunity that was. So I learned, you know, what does it take really to keep an organization more than afloat? And it really, it shined a light on all the things I really wanted to learn. So that by the time I was done with the MBA, I had a lot of experience from working for the city and I had a lot of experience from being in the program. I actually segued after that. I left the city because I also had a lot of exposure to politics and I really did not like that. 
part of the job. And I did not like what I witnessed. Which is a great experience. Sorry to interrupt, but having that background is phenomenal. Amazing. And, and I learned, I was very comfortable with writing, especially coming from Hampshire College. I had to do a ton of writing. So I wasn't afraid to write. So I took my grant writing experience and I, I got a job doing program development and grant writing for a, a, pro, a small private company that did a lot of program development work for a variety of very large, um, very, they did a lot of government grants and a lot of proposal writing. That's year. still in the nonprofit space. Were they writing grants well, profit or was this segue toward? They were, they were a for-profit company, but they were writing, they were writing proposals for things like different programs in prisons and all kinds of things. It was kind of interesting what they did. It was a bit of a hybrid, it sounds it like. Was a, yeah, I, I don't even remember it all that well. I did it for about a year. And then I really wanted to be on my own, though. I realized that I felt like I was always working under somebody else's agenda. And didn't like that very much. That independent spirit in me was screaming. I'm curious, Tammy, you describe yourself as a people person. And from my interactions with you, I would confirm that. And you've also taken us through quite a few career transitions. Or were you getting advice along the way? What what role did people play in your life? Well, I think that one of the key roles was when I sort of hit the wall i hit a wall with the with the fundraising work and i realized that i'd really been i had taken a course actually in during my master's degree i'd taken a course in organizational consulting that i loved and i realized i am not a great employee i do not like being told <laughs> what to do i never did me neither and <laughs> and so i realized that i really needed so i was really interested in consulting and that I really liked to advise other people what to do. <laughs> so I went to the director of the MBA program. This was after I'd graduated. And I told her what my dilemma was at that point that I had been working. But it just things, you know, I just I kept finding myself working in these organizations where I, I just wasn't happier. I was finding fault with either how things were run or that I didn't like the work I was doing. I, I liked the direction of the work and where it was landing, but there were so many other aspects to it that just didn't work for me and that I really thought that I needed to work for myself, but I wasn't sure how to get there. And she was the person who advised me, get a part-time job as an anchor do that, you know, as a financial anchor, and then build something on the side around that. And that was one of the best pieces of of advice I ever got. I think the other thing that I did along the way was to always be talking to other people about what they were doing. If I saw somebody else doing something that interested me, I always made an effort to reach out and find out what do you like about it? How did you get there? And it was basically networking. Yeah. And so it wasn't just about telling people about me and help me get a job. It was more finding out about what other people were doing, what they liked about it, which has always been of interest to me. And then seeing what that sparked in me. 
And this is what I advise people to do all the time is stop worrying about what anyone thinks of you and find out what interests you about what they're doing and then see what that sparks in you. That's a much better way to network. That's wonderful advice, Tammy. And I think it's a gift that introverts um, Yes, because we prefer to listen. That's right. Talk. Exactly. Exactly. It's uh, wonderful when it comes naturally, which it sounds good for you. Yeah. I I teach a workshop on networking for introverts because I think introverts actually could be great networkers and they don't know it. So please tell us a little bit about your coaching practice, who you enjoy working with. And we've heard a little bit about how you work with people, but um, please share. Yeah. So my mission is to help people find meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction at work. And there's a number of different ways that I do that. One is through individual coaching, and I work with experienced professionals, usually people who've been out and working at least 10 years, sometimes less, but usually at least 10 years. And I work with people who are in a variety of roles, anything from managers, directors, all the way on up through the C-suite. And it can be somebody who's deciding what they want to do next, whether they are trying to identify what that is, or they might know what that is, and they're trying to find their way into that next role. So it might be a full-on job search process, or it might be somebody who is in a role that they like, but they're finding that there's some areas that they really would like to strengthen or improve upon or put some fresh air into. And so it's more of a leadership development or some kind of, they want to enhance their presence within the workplace, whether it has to do with how they're communicating or how they're working with other people, the making, you know, their workplace relationships better. So, and then I do speaking. So I love going to women's conferences and association groups or employee research resource groups and talking about how, you know, how can you build your career or design a career that's going to be more satisfying for you? What gets in the way of that? So those are all things that I talk to people about and engage people around. Everything I do is engaging. I never just talk at people. And then, of course, I have the podcast, which is a great way to share other people's stories and shine a light on what they're doing and hopefully inspiring people. And then my book, which also offers people a variety of stories, but also a lot of development tools that people can use right out of the book so that they can start on their own journey. What's your favorite part of the mission? Like what, is there a specific piece you could look at that really sparks joy to use Marie Kondo's? Mm. I think the thing that really gives me joy is when somebody gets to that point or they can see they're on the path towards finding something or establishing something for themselves that, or they feel like they have the tools they need to get to a more satisfied place. They're really taking that ownership. It doesn't mean that they've arrived there, but they can, they can take more ownership of that because I think that a lot of people, well, we know, I mean, there's tons of research and data that shows 
that at least 60-65% of the working population, not just in this country, but in other countries too, are feeling disengaged at work. So what is it that we can offer people so that they can start to take more ownership of their career, of their work life, so that they can feel that when they get up in the morning, they have something to look forward to, that at the end of the day, that kind of tired they feel is a good kind of tired instead of, I'm glad this is over with tired. Put money away, take care of business, but you can take care of business and still be fulfilled in what you're doing day in and day out. I love that, Tammy. Amen. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, my business is also focused on women having experienced myself, having been part of that statistic of just dragging myself to work every day. Yeah. That we have resources, we have financial resources, we have time resources, we have energy resources. Right. And you only get one chance. You're not going right. to get a over. So use yeah. those resources to live a life of purpose and a Absolutely. life. Absolutely. And it's never, ever, ever too late. My oldest client who I helped get a full-time job was 70. 70 is the new 40. There you go. <laughs> well, then that makes me uh, 30 something. You know, I think that people, I hear people all the time say things like, well, I'm going to retire at this age. And I'm thinking, well, what do you think is going to happen at that age? Or how long do you think you're going to live? Or what is it that's magical about that age? You know, I understand that that people have certain benchmarks if they have a certain type of retirement plan or or whatever. But what is it that you think is, you know, what switch is going to turn on or off at that point in time? And it's it's always interesting to me, and I don't ask them, but I'm dying to ask them actually sometimes to say, what what do you think is going to happen the day you turn that age? You know, like, who's in control here of this? What What's the agenda? I don't know. I just, I see a lot of it. I have a lot of friends now who are heading in that direction or have already declared themselves retired. And it's interesting to see how many of them in the last year have declared themselves retired and within a unbelievably short period of time, oh, they're taking on contract work. They're working part-time. They realized very quickly they didn't know what to do with themselves. Exactly. We all look to retire from. Exactly. It's important to retire to. Yeah. And and, And it's not an exploration we culturally prompted to do. And this is not your parents' retirement. You know, the world has changed in so many ways. I mean, honestly, I don't even have a retire. I mean, I have a retirement plan financially, but I don't have a plan to retire. I am sure I will wind down some of the things I'm doing now, but I hope that I live every day till my last feeling that I'm living on purpose, whatever that means. I never, ever want to feel like I'm not living a purposeful life. That to me would be death if I'm not feeling purposeful. So whatever that looks like, I have no plans to retire. I'm saying it here. I'm saying it here. (laughs) So Tammy, as you've been through the iterations of your work life, 
How has your definition of financial success shifted? It has shifted. And, you know, and especially in the last few years, I think since the pandemic, it has shifted as our sense of uncertainty has, I mean, uncertainty has always been there. But I do think that the older I get, the more I'm aware of just how much uncertainty there is and how it it crops up. And so I find myself thinking about what what does that mean, financial success? I think it it means different things than it did years ago. It's it's not even related to my work as much as as just feeling um, a sense of being able to go forward in life, feeling a sense of security so that I can make the choices I want to make versus, and and choices being how I want to live, where I want to live, the kinds of things I want to be able to do, and not in a material way. Whereas I think in my younger years, I might have thought about other goals that I had. I still have some of those goals, but but I've also achieved some of those goals. So they're a little different now. And I think probably thought maybe a little more materialistically in the past. I've never been material, you know, particularly materialistic, but definitely far less now than than then. And as I head into, I am not heading into my 60s, I am in my 60s, you know, I look at things like that in very practical terms. And I think, yeah, I don't want to be one of these people who ends up feeling totally caught and vulnerable and trapped by the expense of healthcare as much as I realize the whole system and how healthcare works in this country is, is a complete mess. Yes. But I can't solve that, but I can try to make sure that I have the pieces in place I need so that I can go forward in my life feeling some sense of comfort, even if I resent the systems that are in place. You know, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for all that resentment. I don't like it, but I want to, I want the, the freedom to choose and to navigate things. And if it means having the resources to do that, then that's what I want to make sure I have. I'm hearing that financial success has shifted to mean freedom and security, the ability to make choices that speak to you and to feel secure and less about, you know, ego and material. Yeah. And I would say, I don't think there was much ever about ego in there as much as I think the, the need to feel that security down the road probably is stronger than it used to be because there was probably a time where I thought, well, you have your whole life ahead of you. You don't need to worry about those things yet, you know, or you're going to live forever kind of you know, thinking, and I'm, I'm well aware that's not the case. <laughs> Thank you for that thoughtful answer. <laughs> Tammy, you are a phenomenal resource for the women that are listening to this podcast. How, what's the best way to reach out to you or to start to get a taste of who you are and how you work with people? Oh, well, thank you. Well, I believe I'm the only Tammy Cooler <laughs> on the planet. If there's another one out there, let me know. So, and no matter how you spell it, it's going to come up on Google. That's so funny. 
You've Tammy. You know, it's got to come up somewhere. TammyGoolerLobe.com is the best way to find me. I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, workfromtheinsideout.com is another way to find me. So I'm pretty easy to find and I'm very approachable. And if people want to get in touch and ask a question or connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm always open to those kinds of connections and love hearing from people and would love to to talk to anyone who has a question or wants to make an inquiry. The other thing that people can do if they want is they can download a bonus workbook that is an accompaniment to my book. It has some bonus sections to some of the uh, activities that are included in the book, and that would be TammyGoolerLobe.com forward slash workbook. And that is a gift that people can have. It's a PDF that they can download. Thank you. Thank you for letting people know how to get in touch with you and for offering that gift. And thank you again so much for being a guest on my podcast. Thank you. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tammy Guler Loeb of Tammy Guler Loeb Coaching and Consulting. Some takeaways I received from our conversation. Be willing to shake things up. Take a risk when you're in a rut. In Tammy's case, at age 25, she bought a one-way ticket to Athens with nothing else but a backpack to kickstart her sense of adventure, freedom, and curiosity. My second takeaway is to consider working in a field before pursuing a degree in it. Tammy had applied to and was accepted into a program for a master's in public policy, but then realized it made sense to work in public policy before enrolling, even though she had a great scholarship award. And she ended up not pursuing that degree. My third takeaway is, as you explore next steps, talk to other people about what they are doing. Tammy shared that if she saw someone doing something that interested her, she always made an effort to reach out and find out what they liked about it and how they got where they were. And looking back, she realizes she was networking. Are you enjoying this podcast? Please don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss next week's episode. And if you love the show, please leave a rating and a review. It would be so greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Making Change With Your Money. Certified financial planner, Laura Rotter specializes in helping people just like you organize, clarify, and invest their money in order to support a life of purpose and meaning. Go to www.trueabundanceadvisors.com forward slash workbook for a free resource to help you on your journey. Disclaimer, please remember that the information shared by this podcast does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or financial advice. It's for information purposes only. You should seek appropriate professional advice for your specific information.